Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. Today, we bring you part one of our five-part series on the so-called world's most hated woman, Lizzie Halliday. Damn. This has been a request like several, several, several times, uh-huh. and I'm super excited to do this story. This series is based on the book Killing Time and the Cat Skills by Kevin Owen. Listen, we're back at it. We're so happy to be dropping some new episodes for you. A yes. big old chunk of them. Giving the people what they want. We had some pretty wild family stuff to deal with this month. So this came out a little later than sometimes we normally like to release them. But it's all good now. Mm-hmm. And I think this is going to be a super fun series. I promise we will continue to release plenty of free content. And this month, we're starting with the crimes and marriages of a larger than life teenager living in the late 1800s. We've got violence, bigamy, arson and murder to set the stage for the life and times of Lizzie Halliday. And I just want to add one more thing. Don't be a hater. Some people don't like old timey crimes. I love them, and you're going to listen to them, and you're going to like it. <laughs> you know, Muriel always bring a modern flair to some uh, ancient murders. Ancient. <laughs> <laughs> I love this, and as always, I have no idea what this is about on any level, so this is going to be great. No, you don't, you mm-hmm. sweet, sweet summer child. Okay, we need to send some major love and gratitude to everyone who has signed up for our Patreon since we released our Bitter Blood epic. We've got M- Emily W. Michelle L. Karen. Brenda E. Increased her pledge. Jenna T. Congrats on the baby. Ransom M. Blanche. Jessica P. Brandy R. And Tanner C. Thank you so much for supporting the show with your hard-earned dollars. We love you guys. All right. This is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't like to hear about those kind of things, Just go listen to a different podcast. Plus, we'll probably end up cursing and joking. So if you don't like that, no hard feelings. Just go back to scrolling on Instagram or whatever else you do in your life. We love and respect you. And don't listen to this podcast. (laughs) All right, Nikki. Are you ready to hear this story? No. Okay. Let's get started. In 1906, the Matawan State Hospital for the Criminally Insane was relatively new and considered the top of the line in mental health institutions. Okay. Okay? So in yeah. 1906, before the rise of pharmaceuticals or so-called chemical restraints, mm-hmm. top of the line meant a hardcore moral treatment. I'm doing that in quotes. I'm doing all these quotes, but nobody can see them. Yeah, Muriel is pumping her hands in the air. (laughs) So a moral treatment. So Uh that would be curing the criminally insane with a strict routine full of basket weaving, sewing, (laughs) and farm labor. All the tasks performed by the patients and Uh benefiting the hospital, sort of serving its patients' needs for bed sheets and food. Meaning like inmates... At the top of their game, being cured of their mental health problems would be like making their own baskets and their own blankets and like raising their own food, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Staff would dole out ice baths, straight jackets, and solitary confinement for those resistant to being cured. I was going to say, I know there's some beatings involved. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get that actually comes yeah. up in about episode five. So that's going to happen a long time okay, now. But so we will some address some of this. Okay. Some beatings to look forward to. Right. But generally speaking, mm-hmm. the, the culture of these places was like, fresh air will do you good, good, hard Work will do you good. Yeah. I think the only thing they really had at their disposal was stuff like chloroform. So if somebody was being like hysterical, you could knock them out with chloroform. Just but a quick little gassing. Right. But there were no like drugs to calm you down gotcha. or, you know, alter behavior. In and all the patients have been convicted of a crime and and labeled insane. 
In this particular institution, right. yes. So okay. it was considered more of a rehabilitation facility, but it was also a prison. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, just a little of that, little of that. Yeah, a little of this, little of that. I guess the point is, is that in 1906, things were a little different back then. <laughs> yeah. Back at the turn of the century, Madawan State Hospital stood just east of the Hudson River in Fishkill, New York. And that's a rural area surrounded by fresh air and clean water, all that stuff we were talking about. <laughs> Great place to put a bunch of crazy criminals. <laughs> the hospital included <laughs> hundreds of acres of farmland mm-hmm. and grazing pastures. There was a greenhouse, a dairy farm, a pig raising spot. I think it's called a piggery. Uh, uh, barns and sheds, like all kinds of stuff to make things. Man, now I want to go there. And the, I know. See, this Lock- is the thing. Me up, man. I'm tired of working. <laughs> and like you think about like industrial New York where uh-huh. you're breathing in coal soot constantly. <laughs> like this, if you worked in the city, yeah, yeah. you know, a lot of the conditions then would be enough to make you have some sort of break <laughs> from reality. I yeah. think it's like really hard life. Yeah, right. Right. And so like this hospital is really out in beautiful nature where everything is cleaner. The main hospital building was designed by this famous New York architect, Isaac Perry, and it was designed specifically to be well ventilated and let natural light in. Okay. Yeah. So it's beautiful. So on the morning of September 27th, 1906, Nellie Wicks, who was a young correctional officer, made her way down the sun-splashed hallways of Matawan to a nearby storage closet, unaware she was being followed. Oh, God. A few moments later, the hallways were filled with muffled screams. Staff ran towards the sounds to come face-to-face with a heavy closet door that had been locked from the inside. And the girls in there screaming? So as the screams continued, the staff on the outside of the door sort of fumbles. Uh, Attendants start taking turns throwing themselves against the door, but there aren't enough people to knock it down. The solid wood held. Mm. Uh, Someone with a key ran up and tried the lock, but the way that the locks were designed, if, if a key was in one side of the door, you couldn't get a key into the other side of the door. So they were trying to get it but the keys jammed wow 1906 really throwing a lot of curveballs at people eventually enough people gathered around this door to collectively break the door down Uh and inside the closet they found Nellie Wicks covered with over 200 ragged stab wounds Uh. to her face and neck and she's bleeding to death. Oh, my God. Straddled on top of her was a small, middle-aged woman with a pair of bloody scissors in her hands. That woman, who had just committed the first murder of a female correctional officer in U.S. history, was actually already infamous. She was <laughs> this already, wasn't her first stabbings. <laughs> she was already famous uh-huh. for a brutal triple murder oh. she'd committed in mm-hmm. the Catskills over a decade earlier. And the murder of Nellie Wicks would be her final crime, the last crime in a series of crimes that spanned decades and included arson, horse thieving, insurance fraud, bigamy, robbery, and of course, serial murder. Of course, serial murder. Yeah, you don't just... Kill poor Nellie with 200 stab wounds in your first time out of the gate. So there, blood spattered in the storage closet, sat the person who the newspapers called the most hated woman in America, otherwise known simply as Lizzie Halliday. Mm. So Lizzie committed her most famous crimes in 1893 after she was released from a two-year stint in a different mental institution after being convicted of horse thieving and then also declared insane. I want to actually put a little pause in this. I That was actually a very horrifying openings <laughs> it's trying to scare you it really <laughs> worked really cool i was i'm trying to be cool i don't know why that was horrible she's just like <laughs> drooling just just on top of this lady what do you mean ragged stab wounds what'd she cut her with the scissors, oh, the scissors. damn it this is horrible i hate this is what's bigamy also uh like when you're married to more than one person at the same time oh so she's a player too yes okay <laughs> i guess i mean we'll talk about it yeah Like I said, she committed her most famous crimes in Mm -hmm. 1893 after she was released from this 
stint in a different mental asylum after being declared insane for a different set of crimes. Gotcha. Sorry, I'm still getting my bearings. <laughs> I'm listening, I promise. So in the spring of 1893, uh, Lizzie was released into the custody of her sixth husband, who was a Civil War veteran in his late 60s. So he's considerably older than her, like uh -huh. maybe, you know, around 30 years. So Lizzie had actually burned down the family home prior to being institutionalized this last time. Mm -hmm. And so she returned to her husband's bleak farm to find the rebuild, which was a two-room shack surrounded by rusting junk with a handful of tiny, roughly cut holes to serve as windows. So now pushing 30, Lizzie found herself a complete social pariah living on a failing farm in Burlingham, New York surrounded by acres of useless, rocky soil with an aging alcoholic husband. So in 1893, things went on without incident that summer. Mm -hmm. Lizzie's husband, Paul Halliday, kept her on a short leash, right? She'd been burning things down before. <laughs> she just kind of got out of this He's like, oh, I got this young wife. Oh, my God. What did I do? <laughs> so that would be the theme. Like, if this episode, the series could wear a T-shirt, yeah. I think that would be the slogan on the T-shirt. I'm just going to say. Oh, my God. So... That summer, the uh -huh. pair were always seen together. They were joined at the hip. They just did their work around the farm together and then would like haul charcoal to sell together, go to town together. They were always together. Okay. But towards the end of the summer, neighbors, family, and friends realized Paul Halliday had just straight up disappeared into thin air. <laughs> okay. And the years of burn-it-to-the-ground energy that Lizzie had brought to the East Coast of the United States had finally caught up with her. Yeah. She was in the center of a tidal wave of finger-pointing. Neighbors, in-laws, family, everyone who Lizzie had touched had an unshakable feeling that Lizzie had disappeared Paul. Mm -hmm. The people thought they had her number, but really, they didn't know the half of it. Most of them didn't even know her real name. <laughs> I love this girl. I mean, I'm not supposed to. Why would I? It's a horrible thing to say, but damn. It's... Okay. <laughs> I know. It's really bad. I think what I really love is you. Oh. <laughs> doing this story. Like, what is even happening right now? So we're going to start uh -huh. with... Lizzie's real name. Okay? okay, we're starting with that. Eliza Margaret McNally. She was born in Ireland around 1864 and immigrated with her family to the United States in the early 1870s. So Lizzie lived with her parents and eight siblings until she left school at the age of 15, which was fairly normal. Mm -hmm. And back in the day, a girl like Lizzie a recent immigrant from a working class family with a basic education had two choices, get married or get a job. Uh -huh. And the job would generally be domestic work, like cleaning, cooking, you know, stuff like that, or factory work. Mm -hmm. So like many girls before her, Lizzie joined the ranks of domestic servants, making households run across the country. <laughs> So by 1879, Lizzie was a 15-year-old going by the name Maggie McNally, living on her own in Greenwich, New York, near the Vermont border. And keep in mind, in 1879, in the U.S., women were still like not allowed to sign contracts. They couldn't vote or hold property or anything like that. Right, right. right. So the town <laughs> was taken by surprise when this petite, unmarried teenager managed to make her mark on the world. Uh-huh. And for a year, Greenwich, New York, had to contend with 15-year-old Maggie McNally, a.k.a. Lizzie Halliday, as she terrorized the population with her <laughs> attempts at servitude. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this Irish girl's out of control. Yeah, I mean, it's just like... She's so young uh -huh. and she's in this position where like you're, you know, you're at the bottom rung of. Yeah, she's an immigrant. And 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 like a working class girl working yeah. as a, like a washerwoman, essentially, or yeah. like a maid. And she's not married. Yeah. Right. She doesn't have any legal rights, really. <laughs> like She's like, few. what a perfect opportunity to wreak havoc everywhere I go. Well, I just, you know, I, there's something about it that's just like for her, she just didn't get the memo. I just feel yeah, like she was just right, like, right. and? Right. You know? <laughs> I'm supposed to be disenfranchised and underprivileged? Mm, hold my torch while I burn this house down. Right. And like, you know. Uh, 
I was writing this and I was struggling with this idea of just how absurd this story is uh-huh. and how much you kind of just sit here in, in awe of this person. Yeah. I mean, she's did a lot of terrible things. Yeah, she's horrible. <laughs> so, R.I.P. Nelly. I know, I know, I know. A, so yeah. I don't know. I hope I don't sound too much like a cheerleader, <laughs> but I just think the story is so wild. Yeah. And this whole episode mm-hmm. is going to set the tone for the rest of the episode. So this is a lot of like a laundry list of all of the things that she did in her early life to set the stage for things that we will talk about in the future. Gotcha. Right. Okay. Okay. So here we go. <laughs> The only record of Lizzie Halliday at this time is pulled from her constant contact with the legal system in Greenwich, New York, and the memories of people she worked for in like interviews that came later in her life. Mm-hmm. So according to friends, family, employers, and legal records, this is what we know. This is a sketch of young Lizzie Halliday striking out on her own. In the beginning, Lizzie had somewhat of a pattern. She started out most jobs enthusiastically. She'd really lean into the I'm your servant thing. So here's a really great example, very clear, clean example. Uh There's one woman. She's only identified as Mrs. G. and She was stoked on Lizzie at first. This petite teenager pitched herself hard for her gig as being like a house servant Uh and convinced Mrs. G with a promise. She said, I'll please you if I have to crawl on my hands and knees to do it. Right. Okay. And so she's like, that doesn't sound manic. That sounds awesome. I love right. this. And plus, you're going to be scrubbing my floors on your hands and knees anyway. So as long as you're used to the concept, let's go. I love being pleased. <laughs> so then Lizzie followed through. Mrs. G said Lizzie was like a perfectionist, fully capable, gung-ho, with a great attitude. And then three weeks into her employment, Lizzie baked something, like a loaf of bread, right? Mm -hmm. Something that just turned out a little subpar. And Mrs. G, used to this sweet, eager-to-please teen, mildly corrected her. She said something like, hey, can you knead the bread a little longer next time? Uh Just something very simple. And what resulted was a truly emblematic response from Lizzie. Okay, she here we go. absolutely went off, right? She's yelling, <laughs> she's screaming, curses. And then in the middle of the kitchen, uh-huh. she announces she's going to have Mrs. G arrested <laughs> right now. So <laughs> she like uh, stomps out of the kitchen uh-huh. and leaves her shocked mistress in the kitchen. Uh, she marches through the streets to a justice of the peace and filed a complaint against Mrs. G for violently assaulting her. Wow, just a little criticism on the on the sourdough went off. Then at noon yeah. on the same day, mm-hmm. just like an hour or so later, Mrs. G was at her house recovering from Lizzie's explosive power quitting when she got another shock. Lizzie just walked. Right back into the house, like nothing happened, and started to go back to work. Uh-huh. <laughs> and there's this moment, right? Like, what do you do? Yeah, you know, right. it's probably the first time she's encountered this situation. It's 1879. There's no like podcasts or TV shows or Discovery or like, I don't know, yeah, yeah. whatever any of these like law and order shows that kind of say like, this is what people do sometimes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. This right. Is, might be the first time she has ever seen or heard any encounter that went like this. Right. right. Yeah, Somebody yeah. says, I'm going to get you arrested. And then they come back and pretend like nothing happened. Like the yeah. ultimate gaslight, whatever that is. You know what? Lizzie's kind of reminding me of in this moment Mm. you when you overcooked that mac and cheese like five (laughs) Christmases ago I didn't say anything I didn't Muriel was so pissed I was you were ready to arrest yourself but then I recovered and I pretended like nothing happened (laughs) exactly So Mrs. G is just like taking this all in and then she's like no girl you don't work here anymore right but Lizzie refused to leave she Mm -hmm. just keeps cleaning so the family had to go upstairs take all her stuff pack her trunk for her throw the trunk out in the street and then forcibly drag her out of the house like a cat to a bathtub she's scratching the walls oh my god this sounds like a horror movie this is a legitimate horror movie and she's like we'll go through just keep Uh this in your brain like this image because that's how she leaves a lot of houses yeah yeah okay 
And this is really how she continued to throw her weight around in Greenwich. For my money, she seemed really creative for a 15-year-old girl with an elementary education. Mm -hmm. Lizzie figured out a two-pronged attack. This is what she did. Explosive fits of rage mixed with frivolous lawsuits. She she figured out how Uh to use the court uh system to exact revenge on any employer who crossed her, which apparently was like all of them, right? Lizzie found this lawyer, James White, who she would consult and try to hire to collect wages she was supposedly owed from former employers. Mm-hmm. So from what I understand, basically she would go get a job, get fired for being a weirdo or rage quit, and then sue. So James White said Lizzie would come to his office, the picture of health. She was like an attractive 15-year-old, bubbly, cheerful, mm-hmm. and try and hire him to go collect wages she claimed to be owed. And after listening patiently to his store, her stories, he kept having to sit her down and like, explained that based on what she was saying, she actually wasn't owed any money. Right, right, right. White later said, quote, I thought I discovered in each instance that she had made a mistake. She accepted my word for it and walked off. I never could satisfy myself whether in these many instances she was trying to swindle or simply seeking to procure what she believed to belong to her. He just kept being like, she just keeps coming into my office and I'm like that's not what works for you and she goes oh okay my bad and then she leaves I could, couldn't you just see like Mia Goth just crushing this role who's Matt from Pearl oh god she was so good she's amazing yeah it's exactly if you've or seen like Pearl, a young Amy Adams kind of vibe like one of like when she goes crazy you know what I mean or if you've seen mm-hmm. Pearl I think that this would be this is a great example of like what I imagine it to be uh-huh. except for she's kind of more detached mm-hmm. you know there's some then that's what we'll talk about so according to white yeah lizzie seemed to know the difference between right and wrong he didn't think that she was confused in his opinion she just didn't care you know if he mm-hmm. said well you can't get the money she's like okay whatever <laughs> you know and yeah. walks away she just had this sort of like detachment yeah. from the situation she's on record for suing all kinds of folks for little bits of money like ten dollars six seventy five mm-hmm. um she was a prolific job hopper washerwoman milk deliverer all these different domestic gigs in greenwich some people she got on with, but the vast majority had some kind of horror story. Like Lizzie worked for a Mrs. M as a live-in domestic help. And Mrs. M said Lizzie was doing all these weird power plays all the time, mm-hmm. like lying about work that she was clearly not doing and then just blanking her and pretending there wasn't any conflict. Like she said, oh, Lizzie would walk up to her and say, hey, why don't I do some of your knitting? And, she, you know, Mrs. M would say, great, that sounds good. And she'd walk in and Lizzie was working on her own knitting. Uh-huh. And she would be like, Lizzie, what are you doing? And she'd just stare at her, put down her knitting, pick up Mrs. M's knitting and just start <laughs> knitting and just pretend like the conflict never happened. <laughs> so it's really a three-pronged approach. <laughs> There's a lot there of is like- That whole pretending everything is completely chill is also a hardcore tactic yeah mrs m kept her kids away from lizzie but then later she Mm. found out that lizzie had been regularly luring her young daughter into the cellar and threatening her with a butcher's knife oh so she ended up firing her she didn't hurt the girl but it was like this weird game she was playing man how big of a town is greenwich How, how how come there isn't a hey don't hire her memo going around so from what i've read Wikipedia has a different number, but uh-huh. on the actual official statistics page, it's yeah. just over 1,200 people. Mm-hmm. So keep in mind, she stays in Greenwich for a long time, and she does a lot of stuff in Greenwich we'll talk about. 1,200 people is not that many people. Hell no. So eventually, we may assume that Lizzie felt out of the two options presented to her, work or marriage, she had chosen wrong. Mm-hmm. So at the end of 1879, she embarked on a journey of marriage, one that would lead to five marriages in seven years. Okay. In the winter of her 15th year on the planet, Lizzie met the first of her six husbands while working as a washerwoman. In between her parade of jobs, Lizzie had this side hustle taking in laundry, which was how she met the bulk of her husbands. Mm. She's like the cute, cute washer lady. Mm-hmm. Washes your clothes, says yes when you ask her to marry her, walks down the aisle. That's basically what it, what it is. 
So Charles Hopkins was a nutty British dude who had gone AWOL from the British Army and was living under the name Keatspool Brown. Okay, sounds like a great match right off the bat. As were almost all of her husbands, Hopkins was considerably older than Lizzie, but still sexy enough to be pulling off love scams on the unsuspecting married ladies of Greenwich. Mm. Hopkins hired himself out as a carpenter for rich families, but he made his real money laying it down on the wives and the men who hired him, and then getting the ladies to siphon their cash out of their husbands' accounts and into his pocket. Oh man, that is my guy. That's what I'm trying to do, man. That Don't sounds great. Do that. At. You're married to me. <laughs> I know, but I need some older sugar mamas, you know? I'm I, <laughs> I'm getting there, man. All right. Uh-huh. So when Hopkins met Lizzie as a little washerwoman, uh-huh. he was already embroiled in a lucrative and scandalous affair with a Mrs. Campbell. So old Keats Bull had been working for a wealthy farmer and hooked one of the farmer's married housekeepers. He seduced her with his exotic British accent, laid it down, promised to marry her, and then convinced her to steal $200 from the farmer for their future elopement. Hell yeah. Now, Charles Hopkins had bit off a little more than he could chew. While juggling Mrs. Campbell, he was also messing around with this new 15-year-old washerwoman, Lizzie Halliday. After Hopkins got the money from Mrs. Campbell, he tried to break it off like usual, writing a heartfelt letter about how he was devastated by his own actions. (laughs) He'd scammed her and he felt so bad about it. The best thing to do would be to leave her forever. He would do the gentlemanly thing and leave quietly with the $200. (laughs) But this time the deal went sideways. Uh Maybe Uh it was the fact that $200 was a lot of money for the time, especially for a domestic worker, like around $6,000 in today's money. Mm -hmm. Or... Maybe Charles Hopkins was just too damn irresistible. But at any rate, Mrs. Campbell wasn't about to take no for an answer. Instead of bowing gracefully out like Hopkins expected, Mrs. Campbell blew up old Keatspool's spot (laughs) and doubled down on her love, showing up unexpectedly and making Lizzie hella jealous. Uh uh But that quickly came to a tragic end. Uh Uh-oh. A short time after Mrs. Campbell received the letter and started pursuing old Keats Bull Brown, uh-huh. she was found dead in bed with a bottle of poison next to her and no note. Her death was ruled a suicide. All we know about the way the situation went down is from an interview with Lizzie herself many years later. So Lizzie claimed John Hopkins was, quote, a very bad man. Mm -hmm. She said she overheard Mrs. Campbell complaining about being sick right before her death, and she saw Hopkins give her a bottle of medicine. Then when Mrs. Campbell turned up dead, Hopkins was never right again and lived the rest of his life in a depression. Now, no one knows how any of this stuff actually went down. Mm -hmm. You know, whether Hopkins gave Campbell a bottle of poison, whether she ended her own life, or that something else entirely happened to her, and that's how she died. But all we can say is, as Lizzie moves through the world, we'll find that she's often involved in very awful things. Awful things that she both has an elaborate explanation for and coincidentally, is also the sole survivor of. Okay, all right. So there's going to be a lot of Mrs. Campbell's in her future. You know, it's like one Mrs. Campbell, fool me once. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> 12 Mrs. Campbell's, what's going on? Here? Right, exactly. All right, Another Mrs. T-shirt. Campbell, yeah. man. I know, that's when a good D goes bad, you know? Yeah. Good D goes bad. <laughs> That's the problem. You want to be out here playing, you know, Nicholas. hooking up with ladies, getting, having them steal money from their rich husbands or whatever kind of men, you know, they can steal from. And then you get it. Like, that's the life that everyone wants. Who right? are you? What are you talking about? But there's a bad side, you know? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's not all. It's not all rainbows and lollipops. At any rate, Mrs. Uh-huh. Campbell died. And against Lizzie's family's wishes... Lizzie and Charles Hopkins were married. Mm. The couple moved to Vermont for a fresh start where Hopkins got a job at a brush factory and Lizzie had her first and only child, a boy she named Charlie after his father. Mm -hmm. So this is another turning point in Lizzie's life. Basically, Lizzie's sister Martha said that after Charlie was born, Lizzie started acting 
so terrifying that Martha actually had to ban her from her house. Oh, wow. It started with Lizzie being moody and irritable, and then it escalated to her complaining constantly of these loud ringing in her ears. She was seeing hallucinations and flashes of light, Mm -hmm. and then she'd have these crazy violent outbursts. So they would be, like this is one example, they were quietly sitting in the living room mending dresses, Mm -hmm. and Lizzie is sewing this dress, and she just stands up out of nowhere, and she screams at the top of her lungs, what's the use of living? And then she rips the entire dress apart to shreds and drops the shreds on the floor. Okay, I'm sorry. That sounds pretty normal to me. I feel like I think everyone gets everyone gets a couple of those a year, you know? I completely get it in that way, too. Like, there's parts of this, and we're gonna, mm-hmm. I'm gonna talk about this, actually, but there are parts of the story that, like, some things are mixed in that are seem like really obvious signs of mental illness are mixed mm-hmm. in with things that are like, well, she was a wild 15-year-old doing anything she wanted, and then she settled down and got married, and now it's like, what's the point of living? Right. You know, there's something in that. I think, like, there's maybe a billion songs about that, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And like I said, we'll touch on this a lot during the story, but the elephant in the room is Lizzie Halliday's mental illness or her potential mental illness. So most believe in history that Lizzie was profoundly mentally ill. She was documented as having what seemed like severe psychotic breaks, sometimes lasting months. She was institutionalized several times over her life for years at a time. And she died in a mental institution after being there for almost a decade. I have a question. Her sister's around. So what's up with her other siblings? She has... Uh, seven, seven other right. siblings. But and where are they? We'll talk a little bit okay. about them, okay. but they're kind of scattered to the wind. They all had the same choice, and she's the youngest in the family. Mm-hmm. So, like, mm-hmm. once you hit 15, get married or get a job, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I think most of them did what she did, right? Mm-hmm. Struck out on their own. In America. Yeah. yeah. In, in the same region, like right. in upstate New York. Gotcha. Yeah. So, anyway, I think the basic line of thought is she was a profoundly mentally ill person, but others saw her as mentally competent enough to create and execute elaborate plans and used terms like, quote, a moral monstrosity or having, quote, animal cunning to describe her behavior. More than one mental health expert at the time felt she was faking the whole thing. Uh And I'm going to do maybe some sloppy editorializing. I'm just going to go for it. Oh, get messy, girl. Shit, you learned it. Well, I think the conversation around her mental health at the time, Mm -hmm. right, suffers from the lack of understanding of things like killing for the sake of killing or committing crimes without remorse. Like, people didn't really have the language or the information to talk about things that today we'd call psychopathy or serial killing, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And also, just to play the devil's advocate, back in the day, women could be institutionalized for having, like, a really bad case of pms right (laughs) there's this neat 2021 article. she's annoying lock her up i mean actually so i'm going to talk about this a little bit there's this kind of neat 2021 article by kate moore for time magazine called Mm. the dark american history of silencing women through psychiatry and this is one of those things you kind of know in the back of your brain like i've heard stories are read incidentally like you know stories about this but it's pretty intense when you think about it Mm -hmm. so this article kind of talks about this idea that the practice of committing women to asylums in the 1800s to enforce submissive behaviors was actually pretty common sure so in most states in the u.s uh, at the time a man could institutionalize his wife without any evidence at all of her sanity. He could basically use any reason he saw fit. Women could be institutionalized for things like extreme jealousy or for bringing the greatest annoyances to the family or for defying all domestic control, even for being hormonal and grumpy during menopause. Right. People were getting, you know, institutionalized for change of life, right? In fact, according to Moore's reporting, the running theory was that at the time was that female sex organs were the source of supposed mental illness, a.k.a. disobedience in women. So genital mutilation was actually a common practice in asylums, along with soaking genitals in ice water or surgically removing people's ovaries. Oh, my God. There was this really famous case I read about. I just thought I'd tell you about it because I don't think you've heard about it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so it's a woman named Elizabeth Packard who was institutionalized. Oh, I've heard of this. You know, no, you don't. <laughs> of course not. No, I've never heard of anything. <laughs> <laughs> so she was institutionalized uh-huh. for, get this, learning about different religions. Okay. <laughs> and questioning her husband. So mm. she later actually became a noted activist for the rights of the mentally ill at the time. Mm. When Elizabeth was a teenager, so this is how her life started, she had a case of quote unquote brain fever, a.k.a. Puberty? No, some kind of illness. She had like a fever, right? Oh, she just had a fever. Right. So she was bled by leeches for a while. And after that didn't cure her, Uh her dad had her sent to an asylum for six weeks. So she survived that ordeal and was released, but she survived it with a healthy skepticism of doctors and the world of mental health treatment at the time. Yeah. So after being released from the first asylum and bled a bunch with leeches, she was, this is just this, like how people's lives were. Uh-huh. So after that, she was married off to a significantly older friend of her father's, a Calvinist minister named Theophilus Packard. And they raised six children together. She raised six children. Friend of dad's. Yeah. That's so, gross. Yeah. <laughs> just, that's gross. So her husband, uh-huh. Theophilus, was a super strict Calvinist pastor. And after the years went by, Elizabeth, who was really well-educated in language and mathematics, she mm. came from a pretty well-educated family and very well-educated for a woman at the time. She just basically thought his sermons were way too out there. She'd go to church and he'd preach and she'd just be like, you're way too radically conservative for me. Mm -hmm. And she decided she was just going to hang out and explore other religions being practiced in the Midwest where she lived with her family. So those were just other churches that were around. It wasn't even anything that out there. <laughs> yeah, right. It's not like Zen Buddhism or something. <laughs> it's just like whatever was happening in Illinois at the time. Yeah, how about I just cross the street and see what's up in that church? The Methodists. Uh-huh. I mean, it was. Okay. It was like that. Okay. So she also, at the time, got involved with her community and she started performing some missionary work and trying to get some fulfillment, connecting with God in her own way, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Theophilus... Was like, wait, hold on. I tell you your religion. You don't get to pick it. Off with her ovaries. <laughs> what What are you doing? So Elizabeth pushed back and Theophilus just threw up his hands and said, you know, clearly my wife is insane. Uh-huh. <laughs> so to, <laughs> to kind of like get her to see, he wanted her to just say, yes, you're right. Right. Uh-huh. And she was like, I don't think you're right. And he's like, this is totally untenable. So... In order to, in a kind of attempt to resolve this thing, Theopolis got a doctor to pretend to be a sewing machine salesman so that this doctor could covertly interview Elizabeth. Sneaky. So Elizabeth was just openly over it at this point. Uh So they're talking and she vented to this sewing machine salesman that her husband thought she was a lunatic for not believing his religious ideas and Mm -hmm. she's just like he's just so annoying (laughs) the doctor later said of their meeting quote she found fault that mr packard would not discuss their points of difference in religion in an open manly way instead of going around and denouncing her as crazy to her friends and to the church she had a great aversion to being called insane before I got through the conversation, she exhibited a great dislike to me. <laughs> so based on that, you yeah. can tell the doctor totally agreed with Theophilus, mm-hmm. saying he, quote, had not the slightest difficulty in concluding that she was hopelessly insane. <laughs> and Look at her. She's got resting maniac face. Right. And Elizabeth was committed to the Jacksonville Insane Asylum uh, for three whole years before she was able to petition for a trial to get out. Anyway, all that is to say that uh-huh. it's fair to take like mental health diagnoses from the 1800s with a grain of salt. What was going on with Lizzie, at least from different witness accounts uh-huh. and medical records, was clearly on a whole nother level than Elizabeth Packard, right? Right. And we'll get into that. Like, it's not exactly like oranges to oranges. <laughs> <laughs> For sure not. One of them burns down houses and murders people. Right. But I think uh-huh. that there's like a complexity to whatever is going on. And this adds to it. Right? So Elizabeth Packard went on to be an advocate? Yeah. What a hero. Yeah. 
What an interesting, cool lady. Yeah, she's that's a really cr- interesting, <laughs> crazy story. It's horrific and horrible. And also, just for all the listeners out there who also had never heard of Calvinist minister and just nodded along with Muriel as she said that, just just so you know, I, I was with you. I think we figured it out. I think it's just like a very conservative, hardcore type of Christianity. I, I, I like started, I already rabbit holed so hard yeah. with Elizabeth Packard that I was like, I don't think I'm going to sit here and explain like Calvinism. Yeah. But it's, uh-huh. as with anything, there are degrees of intensity. And I think right. that he was just like a fire. And my impression was he uh-huh. was a fire and brimstone right. guy. And Elizabeth was more of like, peace and love Jesus guy, yeah, you know, and uh-huh. they just kind of, she was just like, why are you acting like this? And he was like, why are you acting like this? Lightning. <laughs> All right. So All right. anyway, mm-hmm. what was going on with Lizzie was probably fairly different than what was going on with Elizabeth Packard, but they're all navigating the same system. Gotcha. Right? Yes. And for Lizzie, all of her stuff really dramatically escalated with the birth of her son, Charlie. So Lizzie's new behavior extended past the community of Greenwich, New York now, and into all of her many family members. And and after a few short years, the family just completely cut her off. When Lizzie was arrested for her 1893 triple murder, her older brother, John, wrote to officials, quote, she was inclined so much to quarreling that the family all disowned her for years. She could not stay in a place any time when working out on account of her violent temper. And as for late years, we know nothing of her only hearsay. Mm-hmm. So she was really cut loose, like cut off. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. In 1881, two years into her first marriage, Charles Hopkins unexpectedly died from what we know it's probably from breathing in brush bristles at the factory the doctor who examined him said his lungs and throat were just completely damaged beyond repair that is so messed up i mean my grandfather died from cancer complications from a factory he worked in yeah and I get that people work in coal mines and it's the coal that gets them. But to work in a brush factory and, and, then, and then the bristles are what gets in you. Yeah. It feels really like a very painful end. Um, Torturous and just horrible. Yeah. So Charles Hopkins died. And then after his death, Lizzie quietly collected what remained of Mrs. Campbell's $200 and headed back to Greenwich. Okay. (laughs) So now it's 1881 Uh Mm -hmm. and our girl is a single mother going under the name Maggie Hopkins and waking up every morning at the crack of dawn to the relentless pounding of metal on metal. After Charles Hopkins' death, and her family's rejection, Lizzie decided to return to her old stomping grounds in Greenwich, New York, renting a couple of extremely cheap rooms above a blacksmith's shop for her and her toddler, Charlie. Oh, God. It was then that she met husband number two, mm-hmm. Artemis Brewer. Ooh, now, Artemis is a man's name. Yeah. Cool. So locals were pretty baffled about this match. Okay. Well, Lizzie had a reputation for being absolutely frightening (laughs) she was still a Uh healthy vital 17 year old right Right. and artemis brewer was on the more extreme side of local characters so he was a civil war vet so at least twice lizzie's age he was a very significantly short man with an abnormally large head okay and the head was covered in long scraggly hair he was also a pretty intense opium addict so he Arte- sounds a little bit like me. <laughs> <laughs> so Artemis was significantly injured in battle in the Civil War. So he suffered from arthritis uh-huh. and he had heart problems. They call it dropsy of the heart, which is like an enlarged heart. Mm. And so he had to use two canes to sort of meander around town while he chewed opium so he was just known as that guy right whatever that picture kind of evokes in your mind <laughs> and there's like a, a, a fresh back into town young beautiful girl and she's like hi there right and everybody knows that she's really uh like, bad shit you know like threatening people with knives and uh-huh. like screaming and suing people all the time uh-huh, uh-huh. so at this point they're kind of like let's see <laughs> what this train wreck is gonna be right okay so Artemis didn't work 
but he survived on a healthy military pension and he opted to move into the blacksmith apartments, which just seems awful yeah. to me, with Lizzie just after their marriage. People speculated Lizzie married Brewer, Brewer for his pension, but whatever the reason their relationship made a disturbing splash in town. <laughs> It'd be like the top trending, like uh, whatever relationship advice thing on Reddit yeah, in right. today's world. People are like, what is going on over here? Yeah. So they had like a pretty public relationship or mm -hmm. at least a very public sort of facing aspect of their relationship. So Brewer had developed his opium addiction after being injured in battle. And Lizzie loved to hide his opium pills for fun. So she'd take the opium and then she'd challenge him to perform these tasks to get it back, like chopping wood, which is really hard for a guy who has to use two canes to get around. So he'd have to chop all this wood to get his opium back before he went into full-blown withdrawals. And this is just happening in the blacksmith's yard, right? right. In front of everybody. <laughs> in the, the, with the baby. Yeah, right. And, and they were a town spectacle with Lizzie often following Brewer, just screaming at him and pulling his rapidly thinning beard. Sometimes she'd grab his canes and she'd beat him with his own canes. And then other times, if she was feeling like less violent but still vindictive, she would do her errands by speed walking around town while he like desperately followed, trying to keep up with his young and violent wife. So... People were just like, really? That really? is so horrible. It's horrible. What are we even talking about right now? I She's know. just torturing and abusing this guy who can't do anything. Well, you know, I mean, he, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he's a drug addict. He's right? a drug addict. And, you know, he also really wanted to marry a 17 year old. He didn't have to do that. He was living just fine on his pension. Oh, right. Back to the t shirt. You know, I mean, I'm just that like. We came up with. I forget what I said, but like, look, I married this. What was it? Damn it. <laughs> I'll listen back to it. I can't remember what that said. Help me. I married my young wife. I mean, he did this thing. <laughs> yeah. He's the one with the pension. He can vote. He's yeah. got a place to live. You know, like he did all these things. He's also the one who married a 17 year old, moved into that apartment above the blacksmith shop. And like, you know, was following around town. So it's hard to say. She can't do anything. She can't even sign a contract. You know? Yeah, right. I don't know. But she can hide his opium pills and scream at him and beat him in front of everybody. It's horrible. But this is the public facing experience of Lizzie Halliday. So who even knows what's happening behind closed doors? Right. That's just what the town is This saying. is just public accounts and then like a, a lot of like um, – legal records and oh my court God. documents. So this is just what the public knew. So we're the public right now. <laughs> right. And this is <sighs> Civil War veteran deserves better. He was from the North, I'm guessing. They're living in New York. Yeah, I think so. I don't really know. <laughs> Man. Yeah. So the relationship was taxing and Brewer died one year into their marriage. His brother actually sat with him as he died he had mm. a few people like other people he fought in the civil war with and his brother sit oh. around his deathbed he turned blue he frothed at the mouth and then he died afterwards this brother actually went to police to tell them his suspicions mm -hmm. he claimed lizzie had threatened to kill artemis many 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 times like sure. everyone had seen it sounds right but nothing really came of the talk with police brewer's death was ruled either as congestive heart failure like dropsy of the heart mm -hmm. or an opium overdose or both right with a guy like brewer and his health problems like all those things were documented so it would totally make sense it also doesn't preclude Lizzie, like, giving him too much opium, right? Yeah, or taking it away from him. Right, or anything like that. Or but, some more cyanide or whatever the poison was that killed poor Mrs. Campbell. Yeah, right. Regardless, he died, and Lizzie inherited Artemis Brewer's Civil War pension and then continued right on to husband number three. Mm -hmm. So Lizzie, still living above the blacksmiths, met another husband through her laundry side gig. Hiram Parkinson presented himself as a widowed man with several adult daughters, but the whole town watched with bated breath as Lizzie went from publicly torturing her last husband to taking up with Hiram, who they all knew to be a fully married man. <laughs> 
Hiram, <laughs> who was estranged from his wife, had uh-huh. been living at a local hotel. And as soon as he hooked up with Lizzie, he all but moved into the blacksmith apartment. They just love this banging thing. I mean, I'm picturing like old school blacksmith with the anvil and the big hammer. That's what it is. And a bow, bow, yeah. bow. Just con- just constantly Constant. in the background. The telltale heart, yeah. Oh, no. So they all move into this blacksmith apartment, and then they were quickly married afterwards. So like little mini scandal, right? Okay. So the family of three then moved to Vermont, conveniently out of the town where Hiram's wife still lived. So five months of marriage fell apart when Hiram decided to spend Christmas with his other family Uh and made uh, plans to visit his kids in Greenwich for the holidays. Uh, Lizzie attempted to forbid it, uh, but Hiram was not trying to be told what to do, and he left anyway, even while Lizzie physically fought him and ripped the clothes off of his body. Oh, my God. She hates clothes. But jokes on Hiram. Uh When he left, he realized Lizzie had stolen his keys and all of his money. (laughs) So on his way back to Vermont, Super mad. Hiram uh-huh. hired a lawyer and drummed up a constable. And then this, these three men went back to Vermont to challenge Lizzie, right? Oh, I don't think this is going to work out for them. <laughs> well, she's confronted with this. She just started crying and she's like, the money's gone. I don't have it anymore. Uh, it's it's gone. long gone, right? right? So Hiram, on the spot, in front of these guys, he leaves her. He tells her, you know, when I come back from Christmas with my real family, you need to be out of this house, right? And... Lizzie did just as she was told. When Hiram came back to Vermont from Greenwich, New York, Lizzie was gone, along with everything that Hiram owned. Lizzie (laughs) sold everything and pocketed the money and left Hiram with absolutely nothing. Hilarious. Afterwards, Uh she headed back to Greenwich herself. (laughs) She just turned right around and went back to Greenwich. And there, she moved Uh herself and Charlie into a hotel. Um, just as a side note, while she was at the hotel, she was a complete menace and, among other things, got a warrant to arrest the hotel manager's two little boys because they got some guns, like some toy guns, tin uh-huh. guns for Christmas. And they were like, Lizzie, look! And they pointed their guns at her. And so she went straight to the sheriff's office and got a warrant for their arrest. Oh, my God. And that the, sounds like a parent from 2023. <laughs> and the uh, the apartment, the hotel manager had to pay ten dollars to settle the case, like to Lizzie. And then also, yeah. the hotel manager told a newspaper later that he, she said she saw him giving liquor to another guy who lived at the hotel, and she said she'd tell the police if he didn't give her ten dollars. <laughs> so he did. So he was super <laughs> mad at her. He did not like her. <laughs> uh, are we going to talk about? how she's doing as a mother in, in any of this. Just imagine terribly, I think, generally right. speaking. Uh, he's Little a very Charlie's peripheral. doing okay. He's peripheral at this point, uh-huh. but like whatever you could imagine it's like to live with someone like this, just... Just imagine that. Yeah. Yeah, poor kid. So the next husband, George Smith, really actually should have known better. So oh. George Smith <laughs> was a friend and fellow Civil War comrade of Lizzie's second husband, Art Brewer. Oh. Right? So he had literally lived in town right. while she was beating Artemis Brewer and pulling his beard and doing all these terrible things. And then he dies under kind of mysterious circumstances. Yeah. Oh, and uh-huh. George Smith had even been at Brewer's side at his deathbed while he was dying with uh-huh. his brother. So he'd like witnessed the entire thing. Uh, but he wants the widow for himself. After her separation from Hiram, Smith started bringing Lizzie his laundry, something that's almost a euphemism at this point. <laughs> Gross. So Smith worked for the Flatiron Horse Farm uh-huh. and was given a free house to live in as a caretaker. So Lizzie, really quick off the bat, proposed that she and her son Charlie move into one of Smith's rooms in exchange for chores. And after she moved in, Smith later said Lizzie immediately started to trying to get with him. But despite all the stuff that happened with Artemis Brewer, he only had one sort of hang up, right? Mm-hmm. Like everyone in town, he was pretty sure she was still married to Hiram Parkinson. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So there's a little back and forth and negotiation. And finally, Smith agreed to marry Lizzie if she swore in front of a judge that she never married Hiram. I don't know why no one can look up marriage records, but yeah. apparently that wasn't a part of his plan. He it's just, just said, promises at this point. You have to promise you didn't uh-huh. do it. So she did. And just a few weeks after Lizzie started doing Smith's laundry, the two were married. Now, there just must be like just so few eligible bachelorettes. I mean, she doesn't sound eligible at all. 
don't There's know. There's just like very few women that would marry this man. I honestly, he has a civil war pension too. So he's taken care of and he has a uh-huh. good job as a caretaker and yeah. a house. So like, I can't imagine he wasn't somewhat appealing, but I, I don't really know. It's uh-huh. just wild. She just lands him like she's just running around yeah. with a lasso, hunting him down. So a couple nights later, after they were married, Smith got his first real taste of Lizzie's nuttery. So Great. he walks in on Lizzie, already a dark picture. She's kneeling in front of a trunk that he recognizes as being Artemis Brewer's trunk that she mm-hmm. had inherited from him. Mm-hmm. So already it's just like dark. Uh-huh. And inside the trunk is this stack of marriage licenses, and she's adding her newest one to the pile. So... He goes over and they're talking and she shows him a couple, but he sees she's obviously trying to hide one. Um, So Smith finally gets her to hand it over. Laughing, she just shows him her marriage license to Hiram Parkinson. Uh Sure, of course. Right? So George Smith is now in Lizzie's reverse harem and (laughs) probably just ass tired. Smith just rolls over and accepts it. He's just like, I just gave up. (laughs) Who cares? So this fourth marriage didn't tame Lizzie. She kept shining on. Lizzie threw a flat iron at Smith's head. She chased him out of the house. She chased him with a pair of scissors, threatening to kill him. One day she got this bee in her bonnet and decided she wanted to destroy this feather bed. It was a really special bed that Smith really prized and had stored away at a local lady's house. Mm -hmm. So half naked, she ran to the house in the middle of the day where the feather bed was being stored. She punched the woman who was keeping it (laughs) and then dragged the mattress out into the street, ripped it open, scattered the feathers all across the street (laughs) and ruined the mattress. So it's like keying someone's car or something or like ripping up your old baseball cards or something. Exactly. So she got 15 days in jail for that one. Oh, damn. And she showed up to court with no shoes on. (laughs) So now we're starting to get into like the more detailed records of things that she did that people can write down. Yeah, like we got to write this down. Yeah, right. Well, she's becoming an adult. I mean, she is an adult at this yeah, point. Yeah, she's about right? 20, I think. Right. So then Lizzie, after doing the feather bed thing, started up again with her third and I guess current husband, Hiram Parkinson. Okay. So she would take off for Hiram for days at a time on little love vacations. Mm-hmm. And poor George Smith would like frantically call police over and over worrying about his missing wife. So like once a week he's calling police, Lizzie didn't come home last night. She's with her other husband. Eventually the police had to tell Smith what the whole town already knew. Uh Lizzie was just out with her other husband. Right. Right. Boy, who who also is taking her back. Yeah. He's kind of like, you know, He's living his life. That guy is super weird to me. <laughs> he's like not really taking her back. He's just like, yeah, whatever, you know? Yeah. Well, he did say, I'll never see you again. You have to be gone. Then she jacked him for everything he owned. Yeah. Sold it all. Yeah. And now he's like, okay, great. What are you doing this weekend? That's literally exactly what happened. It reminds In this me, town of 1,200 people. I know. It reminds me of our Catherine Knight episode from yeah. Australia. Yeah. This woman was known to be an abuser. She was known to be violent, but she's also one of the only ladies who's hanging out at the bar who's like down to pound, you know? (laughs) I know. It's just such a weird, life is so weird. Okay, so (laughs) after, you know, this thing happens, he realizes Mm -hmm. she's also taking up with Hiram. He's still living with her and everything is always forgiven. She has a way of coming back and being really sweet. Kind of like of how, course, right. how she was doing before. She'd yeah, like yeah. say, I'm going to get you arrested and then come back and be like, do you want me to get you some tea? And well, it's like classic or... abuser behavior, right? Right. Right. So one morning, Smith came down to breakfast table to find a cup of tea waiting for him. It was already weird, mm-hmm. right? Solo cup of tea. Lizzie's just sitting there with like a cat grin on her face. So he normally takes his tea black, but this particular cup had been loaded with cream and sugar. Okay. He didn't want it. But Lizzie just kept bugging and bugging and bugging him to take a taste, to drink it. So he breaks down. He takes a sip of this tea. And as soon as he does, he starts sweating and shaking and looking at Lizzie. Lizzie looks him in the eyes, grabs the cup of tea, and runs out of the room, giggling, and disappears. (laughs) So Smith is rolling around on the floor, screaming for help until somebody hears him. They run inside and they find a doctor and the doctor gives him like an epicac, like something to vomit out the tea mm-hmm. and he survives. So <laughs> like investigators 
and the doctor are all trying to find the cup to test for poison, but no one could find it. Or Lizzie. She had just disappeared. Yeah. So they gave up trying to find Lizzie, and they just said, hey, man, you got to not eat or drink anything your wife makes you. And that <laughs> She's was that cool, bro. <laughs> you got to be careful with her. That's what I'm saying. It's like public knowledge now yeah. that she poisoned him, but they're just like, well, we don't have any evidence, so just don't eat anything. And they're like, man, did you hear Lizzie poison? <laughs> you know, I know. Got to bring her my laundry tomorrow. Damn. Okay. So finally, mm-hmm. in what may have been a stroke of luck in disguise, a short time later, Smith came home to find his house locked and the inside stripped down to the floorboards. Everything in the world that he owned was gone, along with his wife. She That's, is so good at garage sales. It's a divorce Lizzie style. And uh-huh. people are buying the stuff. Like, know. the people know who she is. <laughs> I'm just like, like uh-huh. the complicity is just wild to me. Well, oh, Lizzie hooked up with George. Okay, wait for that for sale sign to go up. We're going to get some deals. Right. And then after Lizzie robbed George Smith and sold all his stuff, apparently to his neighbors, she was seen riding out of town on a wagon with Hiram Parkinson. Just like two middle fingers to the sky, whatever, right? Damn. So that sweet reunion lasted about a week before the two parted once again. They, you know. This is all rapid succession. I know. (laughs) And Lizzie Uh. then shows up at her estranged brother John's house in Sandgate, Vermont, with her son in tow. Now, John had disowned Lizzie years prior. She knew he wouldn't let her in. Mm. But Lizzie was playing 3D chess. Before getting to her brother's house, she paid a group of boys who were hanging out on the side of the road to carry her to her brother's door in a wagon. And then when John opened the door, she weakly told him she had broken her leg. So suspicious. Wow, that was 3D chess. I'm saying, right? So suspicious. John reluctantly uh, takes her in. It's not clear what happened next, but three days later, John forcibly ejected his sister out into the street, who then stalked away from the house on a miraculously healed leg. Right. It was just like 20 minutes in. He's like, so can I see your leg? Where's the bone? Is there a bruise? <laughs> She's like, let me get you a cup of tea. <laughs> so in Vermont... Mm. Lizzie took one more shot at married life. Husband number five, Charles Playstell of Bellows Falls, Vermont. He was the only husband who was close to her own age. Nothing is really written about him before Mm. or after the marriage. Um, He was a painter. The affair was brief. And after two weeks of marriage, Lizzie was out on the road again. Mm -hmm. So this takes us to 1886. Lizzie was 22, single, with five spectacularly failed marriages. Her family had disowned her, and she had burned pretty much every conceivable bridge in Greenwich and more than likely had police looking for her. Mm -hmm. So she decided to beat it, hit the bricks, get out of town. Her family described this period in her life as tramping it. Mm -hmm. She and her kid were homeless and walking from town to town, heading south away from Greenwich, New York, and toward greener pastures. And this may have been around the first time Lizzie made contact with the traveling groups of Romani populating rural New York at the time. Mm. So this would be a community she would later be connected with during her year off the grid that suspiciously coincided with the violent death of a beloved traveling salesman. So we're going to talk about that in our next episode. My interest just got peaked. <laughs> but for now, uh-huh. Lizzie was headed south. And that's where we'll pick up in the next episode. Lizzie moving to Philadelphia, uh-huh. having a spectacular horrific failure there, getting incarcerated and then sent to an asylum. Lizzie's lost year in 1890. Uh-huh. Hanging out with the Romani. Exactly, potentially. Okay. And then her reemergence in upstate New York as an arsonist, horse thief, and once again, married woman. Oh, Muriel, I love it. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. 
and thank you, our listeners, for listening to Miro's Murders. Miro did all the research, writing, and hosting. I did all the recording, editing, and post-production. This podcast was recorded in a closet at my parents' house. <laughs> to help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, you can sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murder. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be amazing for Muriel and I if you texted it to a loved one in your life who would enjoy it as well. Your support keeps us inspired and motivated. Other great ways to help the show include leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Reading and following us on Spotify. Connecting with us on social media. We do try to follow back and stay up on our DMs, so hit us up. Yes, we love hearing from you. Those DMs are open. Slide in. Plus, you can email us. <laughs> you can find all that information and the links in the show notes of this episode, or you can visit murders.com. Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. He also just released an instrumental EP called Goat Cheese on Bandcamp, which I highly recommend if you're looking for some top-notch music. I'll put the link in the show notes. Plus, stay tuned to his Instagram for updates on a bunch of exciting releases he has coming up with Tech Nine's cult favorite record label, Strange Music. He's so cool. He's He's got fire. All he's, right. he's killing it. <laughs> you are too, by the way. Thanks for everyone who uh, recommended the story. Yeah, it's pretty cool. People have been recommending this for a while, and uh, I'm really glad they did. All right, well, freaking keep listening, because all, all parts are available for you right now. All right, bye. Peace and love.